Well, as we uh, continue to, to move through this uh, series um, on these individual encounters that Jesus had with people throughout the Gospels and kind of looking at how Jesus was able to be full of grace and truth in all of those, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end of his earthly ministry. So the rest of the accounts that we're going to be um, looking at in the next uh, few weeks here leading up to Advent are all things that have happened or encounters that happen as he's on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross that awaits him. And so that's just a little bit of context uh, for us today. And today we're going to come to a story in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus has this encounter with a man of great wealth. And we don't really know that about the man until kind of the middle of the story. Um, but Jesus knows this guy's story. And so um, he kind of knows where this conversation is going to end up at some point. And I think that that's just a great reminder to all of us that Jesus is intimately aware of every minute detail of our lives. He knows our story inside and out. And so there's really no point in pretending that we're hiding anything from him. Um, so I want you guys to go ahead and open uh, to Mark 10, if you haven't already, page 920. Um, and we're going to start in verse 17 today. Verse 17 of Mark 10 says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I wonder if the disciples have kind of gotten used to this people running up to Jesus thing. Last time we looked, it was a demon-possessed man. So um, I wonder just how cautious they might be at times. But um, what are some assumptions that we can make about this guy just based on what we've read in just this one verse? Verse 17. Look at it again. Tell me what are some assumptions that we can make about this guy based on that. Yes, Gary. Okay, he thinks that, yeah, he thinks Jesus has got some answers because he's asking him. He sought him out. What else? Yeah, Devin? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so part of his language, he doesn't, doesn't call him Lord like some other people have that address him. He calls him good teacher, so... There might be a little bit of him still trying to figure out who this guy is. What else? Yes. Okay. All right. So there's some desperation maybe. I mean, it's not often that you run up to somebody and fall on the ground before them and ask them a question, right? Except, you know, when you were a kid, please, can I spend the night with so-and-so? You know, I'll do anything, but, you know. Um, most of the time we don't do that kind of stuff, right? Okay, what else does his falling to his knees, though, also reflect? Submission, um, a sense of, like, Jesus is here and I'm kind of here maybe. Like, um, you know, if he just saw him as, as a peer, he might not fall down to his knees. He'd just look him in the eye and ask a question. So there's some things that we can see um, you know, one thing that I think we learn from what he asks is that we can see very quickly that he thinks this whole thing is about his own effort. Okay, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
so he's convinced that his striving, his earning God's favor um, will come through his own effort. And I have to admit that when I have conversations with people about what it means to be in relationship with Christ, that this is one of the biggest obstacles or hurdles that I have to kind of navigate through with someone is people find it very hard to believe that it's not about them getting better, being a better version of themselves, right? Cleaning their act up, doing some things to prove that God, hey, I'm, I'm on the right path. I'm trying to figure you out. And when I make it known to them that it's like, no, it's not about you, right? If you could clean yourself up, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come to begin with. The fact that he came tells us that, that it's God's effort that's really going to be the difference maker here and that, that we just have to receive what's already been done for us. And, and that's, that's hard for people to accept because we want it to be about us. But Christianity at its core is about what God has done for us, not what we do to deserve his favor. A couple of verses I want to just remind us of to, that really hit at this. Romans 5, 8, a lot of you know, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, far from him, enemies of God, hadn't done anything to, to show him that we're serious about moving in the direction of pleasing him. In that state, at our worst, Christ died for us. Okay, Peter, in 1 Peter 3.18, said this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So in that first verse, it's Jesus pursuing us, and, and, and his pursuit is what? To bring us to God, not for, for us to go find him and figure him out in our own efforts. Okay, but we'll cut this guy a little bit of slack this morning, okay? Because at this point in the story, there is no cross yet. So he doesn't have the, the cross of Christ to, to kind of understand how this all works. And he, like a lot of other Jews at that time, were, were really struggling with this new idea, this new concept that Jesus was talking about, this new covenant, right? The Old Testament covenant was a covenant of law. And it really looked like on the surface level... Um, that it really was about following these rules and, that's, and making these sacrifices on the right days and jumping through these hoops, and that's how you got close to God. But really, guys, the whole Old Testament was just a giant setup. <laughs> it was a setup to communicate to people that I'm going to give you these laws that you will never be able to keep to show you that you need a Savior to do it for you. So, he, like a lot of other Jews, are just trying to figure this out. Jesus comes along and he talks about this new kingdom that's a, a covenant of grace that's based on, on his goodness and his actions towards us and trying to figure out how all that works, okay? I love this quote about this initial encounter by a commentator named David Guzik. He said, he didn't want Jesus to be his savior. He wanted Jesus to show him the way to be his own savior. The better question for him and all of us, I think, to ask is not what, what must I do? The better question is this, who must I be in light of who God is? Who must I be in light of who God is? And, and the ironic thing in this story, this, this is first verse, is that this guy actually got it pretty right before he even opened his mouth. 
If all he'd have done is just fall at the feet of Jesus, that's the best thing he could have done for Jesus that day. All right? But then he had to say stuff, right? That's usually how it goes for most of us, right? Let's look at how Jesus responds. This guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So this is where this guy kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit, right? So Jesus says, okay, here's the deal. He pulls out six, the six of the Ten Commandments that really have to do with kind of how we treat one another. And he says, you know, yeah, here they are. How are you doing on these? And this guy says, well, as a matter of fact, I've been kind of killing them uh, since I was a kid. I've, I've been doing all of that pretty regularly, as a matter of fact. So, um, yeah, I'm good. And, and these are the times when I wish, like, we could hear the soundtrack of what Jesus was thinking in that moment, right? Because he's looking at this guy, and, and I, we've probably all been in those situations, and sometimes we've been these people, but you've been around people who are so blind to their own sin, and they start saying stuff about their own perceived goodness, and you're just thinking, what in the world? Can you not see, like, X, Y, and Z that you're doing? Like, and it's tough, right, to be in those conversations. So this guy's trying to have that conversation with a holy, perfect God, okay? So, and this, this conversation right here, guys, is the very reason why. When Jesus began his earth, earthly ministry and began teaching, um, and you can see it for sure in the Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus said things like this to kind of poke holes in people who were kind of patting themselves on the back and kind of fooling themselves into thinking that they're pretty awesome, all right? Jesus said things like, hey, you know, you've heard it said, right, in the Old Testament to not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman in lust, that you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, if you even call a brother a fool, you've murdered them in your heart, You see, Jesus gets beneath the surface level actions on the outside, and he gets down to our motives and intentions in our heart and mind. And he says, you know what? If you've just thought it or felt it emotionally in your heart towards somebody else, it's it's like you did it outwardly as well. And so he changes the scorecard big time, the standard. And by these new interpretations of the Old Testament commands, there's absolutely no way that any of us can stand blameless before a holy God. This guy is missing the target. You can hear in his questions this arrogance, this self-sufficiency. He wants the blessings of God without the relationship that that, uh, those blessings demand, okay? And there are a lot of ways that I could see myself responding if I were Jesus in that moment. None of them very good. But Jesus' posture is one of unbelievable grace. Look at just the first part of verse 21. So this guy just said, all these I have kept since I was a boy. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Hmm. Why did he love him? I'm asking you. Why 
Why did he love him? Yeah, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he said, besides for the obvious answer that he created him, right? He created all of us, so he loves all of us because we're his children, is that he knows where this guy is at, that this guy is at this crossroads, he says, right? Where he's being confronted with his own sin, his own brokenness. He loves him because he sees this emptiness in him, right? And then this, this striving, this, he can see this guy striving to build wealth, to be successful, to earn his worth. And so Jesus is filled with compassion for him because it's heartbreaking to God to see his children striving to hustle their worth when God's grace is a gift. And, and guys, as imperfect parents, we do this all the time, especially if we have some kids that are maybe a little bit older, starting to make some choices for themselves, right? We see our children going down some paths, whether it's actual, like a path they're taking steps and doing some things, or even just in their thinking and the way they're viewing themselves, others, God, where we see that our kids are buying into some lies and they're putting their hopes in some things. A lot of times it might be success or, you know, grades or sports or a boyfriend or girlfriend that we know as parents, we're sitting there watching this and we know it's not going to satisfy you like you think it is. And you know what that's like as a parent. It just, oh, man, it rips you up because you know your kid's going to get hurt, right? And if we, even in the midst of our kid's foolishness sometimes, and it's all part of just being mature and growing up, okay, so we all made those mistakes, our heart breaks, right? And in the midst of them being like, you know, making some poor choices, we have so much compassion for them and we love them so much and we don't want to see them get hurt. If we as imperfect parents can do that, imagine how much a perfect God loves this man in the midst of his brokenness and his foolishness right now, okay? Now, here's the amazing balance of Jesus, though. Right on the heels of these feelings of compassion, and I don't really know how Jesus conveyed that in the moment. It says he looked on him and loved him, you know, so I don't know what that looked like. Maybe he put a hand on his shoulder or, or whatever. Comes the hard truth that Jesus delivers next, So look at the second half of verse 21. It says, one thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Man, that started out so well, didn't it? Jesus says, hey, just one thing you lack. I'm sure this guy is thinking, awesome, just one thing? Oh, man, that'll be easy, man. We'll knock this thing out by lunch. You know, what is it? Come on, let's get going, right? What's the one thing? But he certainly wasn't ready for what Jesus said next. You see, because Jesus took this man down the path that he wanted to go on. And so Jesus, in effect, is saying, oh, you want to do something for me? All right. 
I'll have you do something. How about you sell everything you have and give it all to the poor? How about you do that for me? Jesus goes for the jugular. Why? What's, what's the first commandment? Anybody know? This is like Christianity 101 here. Okay? What is the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Don't let Phil be the star student again. Somebody else. What is it? Yes. Yeah, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? So before he gave, kind of gave him six that we're talking about, you know, how you treat other people. And he brings him back to the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus knew that this man's God was his wealth. And so he hits him right there. And we'll dive into that a little bit more deeply in a moment. But needless to say, this is not what he wanted to hear. Right? Treasures in heaven. Blah, blah, blah. Right? Don't hit me with that stuff. He wanted God on his terms. Okay? Don't mess with my livelihood, Jesus. We say that all the time, right? Just give me a task to accomplish, right? Tell me that I got to go serve at the food kitchen or give some of my clothes away to the needy or, um, or even like come to church. I'll do that. I'll even serve a little bit, maybe give a little bit of money. But don't tell me what to do with my stuff. And here's the truth for all of us is that Jesus wants every part of our affections, and for whatever reason, money and possessions tend to be the things that we grip onto most tightly. Why is that? Why are finances, conversations around money, so difficult to have with us? I'm asking you. This is High Participation Sunday. Okay? Yes. What's that? It's tangible. Okay. What else? Yeah, Devin. Yeah, we feel like it's ours and we've earned it. Okay. Mm, man, I'd love to have that conversation with y'all, but I, that's another sermon. Okay. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah. We find our comfort and security in that, right? It makes us feel safe. So don't mess with that, right? Anything else? Yes. Yes. It allows us to trust in ourselves, okay? Instead of maybe having the faith, the trust in God. Good, man. Yeah, you guys are well-versed in this, right? We all are. Wealth was his God, his idol, his comfort, his security, all these things you mentioned. So Jesus, and not just with this guy, but with all of us, he goes straight for whatever is the greatest roadblock in our life to complete surrender to him. He goes straight to whatever is the greatest roadblock of complete surrender to him. Jesus doesn't want us to do something for him. He invites us to follow him. He invites us into relationship to live as he lived. And verse 22 says that when asked to sell everything, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, I want to make sure that we are all very clear on something this morning, okay? Every one of us sitting in this room is the rich person. So if you're sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, man, those rich people, that's going to be tough for them to get in, that's you. You're talking to yourself, okay? Because whether you make $25,000 a year or most of us probably make more than that, when half of the world is living on $2 a day or less, we are exorbitantly rich. We're filthy rich, every single one of us, which is why the gospel message can be tough sledding in our culture because we feel like we have all that we need. Money solves a lot of our daily realities It dupes us into thinking that we can do life without God. The security money provides makes it difficult for us to receive this all-in call to surrender that Jesus demands. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning going a little bit deeper into that statement that he went away sad, okay? Um, Pastor Tim Keller, who many of you know, he's an author and, and, and pastor, kind of a famous guy, He did a message on four reasons the man went away grieving. And I want to take a look at two of those today, two points that he made. So the first reason Keller said the man went away sad was because he met the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that he wanted to believe in, that would tell him what he wanted to hear, but the real Jesus. And Keller said that when we encounter the real Jesus... We are always shocked and disturbed. Shocked and disturbed at the extent of both his grace and truth. Here's what he said. We are shocked because he demands more than we thought he would. And he also offers more than we imagined. So the extremes of his grace and truth are both overly comforting and overly troubling, okay? And Keller said that we only have really two viable options when we encounter the real Jesus. Our first option is to bow down before him in wonder and awe. Our second option is to walk away offended. Now, of course, we want to find the middle ground, and, and he said, there, there, there is no place of indifference. Because we find out when we meet the real Jesus, Christianity is not something we can just add on to our lives. Like, I'm going to go ahead and keep living life the way I want to by my rules. And then plus, I'm just going to add in a little bit of Jesus to make me feel good from time to time. And that's not how Jesus works. He's not playing that game with us. He's not playing the game. If you think about your life as kind of like a pie and you think, well, okay, I've got, you know, 25% of my life is work and then I've got family and my hobbies and then I've got my Jesus over here on Sunday mornings and Bible study. And he becomes just a, a piece of the pie in your life that you kind of work in when it's convenient for you. Jesus says, no, I'm at the center of your life and I, I want to be Uh, This is a holistic thing. I want to be a part of everything. It's all about me, not just some of it. And Jesus makes the rules up about how this is going to work. 
We don't come to him and say, I'd like to be a Christian, and here are the terms under which I'd like to be a Christian, and, you know, slide the paper across, and Jesus, if you could just sign on the dotted line and put the date in there, that'd be, if you get that notified, that'd be awesome. This is the agreement that we've come to. No, Jesus, the other way around. Jesus slides the paper across to us and says, here are the terms. Actually, they're pretty good because I've done all the hard work. I died for you, and I rose from the dead for you, and I'm offering you eternal life. And all you have to do is just a few of these things, and you get a lot, all right? For somehow, some reason, that, that deal's not good enough for us. So we want to, to change the deal and, and make it more about our effort. So that's not, that's not the game Jesus is playing, Okay? And, and because Jesus loves us so much, guys, <clears throat> he demands that we destroy whatever affections are in our life that are not him to make way for someone new that will truly satisfy us. Finally, Keller said that the young man went away sad because Jesus got personal. You see, this man wanted to keep the conversation ac- academic. Just like the Pharisee that we looked at several weeks ago in John chapter 3, just like the Samaritan woman uh, at the well that we looked at in John chapter 4. See, those conversations were all going great as long as we were talking about theory and theology and ideas. But in all of those encounters, Jesus got personal. To this man, he says, hey, I know that your security is in your wealth. And so here's the deal. I want you to sell everything and give it to the poor. Right To the Pharisee that came at night, he says, hey, I know that your security is in this, this, this idea, this status that you have in culture as being a biblical scholar. I know you think you're an expert. I know you think you get God. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to consider that everything you think you've known for your whole life is wrong. And then maybe you need to relearn everything and you need to be born again and start from scratch. He got personal with him. The woman at the well comes, right? And she's getting her water. And Jesus says, you're going to get this water today. But you know what? Tomorrow you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to come back here again. But if, if you drink of me, I'm living water. And, and, and if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Now go get your husband. And it got personal, Right? Folks want to hide behind the curtain of theory and theology and ideas, but Jesus gets to the heart in a way that disturbs and disrupts us and says, let's deal with that stuff first. And guys, there was a guy in town that I was an acquaintance with that for years I would see in different places, stores, you know, right in the middle of Hy-Vee, wherever. And for some reason, when he would, we bump into each other, he felt like it was like Bible answer man time or something. And, and it'd be like, oh, there's Pastor Bob. And he would come at me with just some really obscure, you know, so pick like the book in the Old Testament that's the most obscure, Habakkuk or something. Hey, I was reading this the other day, and what do you think about that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, and here's the deal, okay? Because I was not going to entertain these conversations, because I knew enough about this guy's home life. And I knew that his family was a mess. I knew he had a lot to work on there. And what I was thinking in my mind is, dude, quit worrying about this little verse in some 
passage in the Old Testament and go home and be a good husband and dad and lead your family well. Like, put your best effort into that. I'm not going to entertain this conversation with you. And, and those kinds of uh, interactions with people are maddening to me. I'll be honest with you, like, and I, I really, please, I'm saying this as humbly as possible, okay? But really a lot of why we started Wellspring, why I felt compelled to do this is I'd really kind of grown weary of going to churches and small groups that focused on acquiring more information about God. And it's not that information about God is bad, but acquiring a bunch of information and then patting yourself on the back about how much you know without talking about how then do we go live that out is pride. It puffs up, right? The Bible doesn't say they'll know we are Christians by how much we know about the Bible. It says they'll know we are Christians by our love. And so I'd rather dig into, okay, we can talk about the information, but how is that going to lead to transformation? What are we going to do with it? What's the practical theology of how we live as a result of that? How are we looking more like Jesus and just like Jesus did with this rich young man, he is saying to each one of us this morning, I want the most important thing in your life. I want it. I want to be it. <laughs> that thing that you think will provide you with the most power and joy without me, I want that. And for this man that we looked at today, it was his wealth. Maybe some of you aren't that motivated by money. It'd be interesting to see how motivated you'd be if I took it all away. But anyways, okay. So maybe you're thinking, oh, money's not that big of a deal. It's not the thing I'm putting my hope in. Just remember that God also asked Abraham to give up his son. Right? The son that he had waited his whole life for the son that God had promised and provided. I want Isaac. Well, let me be clear. God never asked another person in the Bible to sell everything. So this is not like some, you know, applicable thing that we all have to go out and sell everything today. He never asked another person in the Bible that I could think of to sacrifice their child, except himself. <laughs> And while those might be extreme examples, we serve a God who is jealous for our affections. Guys, we have to remember that he gave a lot to rescue us from darkness. That came at a high cost to God. He had to, to sacrifice his son and humble himself in that way on the cross. And that price demands our allegiance to him. And that's the truth. The grace is that he also knows that he's the only one that can completely satisfy us. And so just like with this man, he looks at us and he's like, guys, I'm trying to save you, just like we do with our kids. I'm trying to save you from some heartache here. I'm trying to tell you that pursuing your academic career or your money or your success or that guy or girl or whatever, it's not going to satisfy you like you think it is. Only I can do that. And so in his grace, he says, I, I want you to give that thing to me that's not going to help you anyways. And let me be the thing that satisfies you. 
And guys, as we encounter people that God has placed in our paths on a daily basis, some of them are right under our nose, our husband, wife, kids, friends, our coworkers, our teammates, our classmates, we have a lot of opportunities, right, to extend grace and truth. And it's kind of like the whole thing about, you know, like if you're getting ready to go buy a whatever, a black Corvette, you know, and then you start seeing black Corvettes everywhere you drive, right? It's like now we've been talking about grace and truth the last two months. And so in your relationships, I'm sure that a lot of you have been thinking, well, how can I extend some grace to that person? Or where do I need, right? I've had people call me in the last few weeks. Hey, here's my situation. And I, I think I want to be graceful this way, but uh, what do you think I should do, right? We're all in this tension right now, Okay. But guys, listen, this can't be just an academic experience here. We can't just walk away from this series and say, oh, man, that was really interesting. Jesus did an awesome job of balancing those things in the way that he encountered people. That's that's, that's cool. No. Jesus says, hey, I want you to do that. And so as we walk away from here and walk into life, guys, I want you right now in your life, all of us have a person, maybe several people, who we need to be wrestling with. Man, how do I be grace and truth? How do I be a little bit more compassionate and loving towards this person that I just want to, mm, right? Or maybe how do I need to bring some when I'm scared of what they might say? How disturbed they might get. Remember, Jesus disturbed people. So we should disturb some people sometimes and disrupt them, even though it might not feel good to us, Okay? So what I, want, what I want to ask of you is, is that you would do something courageous this week. That you would extend grace and truth in a courageous way towards someone else. And, well, also, well, also remember how we started this whole thing by confronting in our own hearts the reasons why, the sinful reasons that keep us from extending the hardest thing for us to do is extend. So us grace folks, not me, you guys, um, you grace people, okay? Why? What's the sinful thing in me that keeps me from speaking the truth when I know I need to do it? What's, what needs to die there? The truth first, people. You know, what needs to die in me that I can't extend grace sometimes and just be compassionate? What is it about my heart that's a little messed up there that I need to repent of and change? We need to be wrestling with that internally while practicing extending it externally in tangible ways, Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this encounter today. Thank you for this conversation and how 